Hey, true crime fans, Ashley and Ricky here with Crime Salad. We're a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crime every other Wednesday. If you have an interest in true crime or you're looking for your next podcast to binge, join us as we take you through a 25-minute true crime story tossed with jaw-dropping details that you crave. One of our favorite cases we covered is titled The Butcher of Plainfield, where we talk about Ed Gein and his unusual crimes that have actually influenced a number of disturbing horror films, including The Silence of the Lambs. Be a Crime Salad investigator with us by listening to Crime Salad at work or on your daily commute. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just to let all you Red Rum listeners know, we have created a Patreon starting December 1st, 2020. Every month, we'll be releasing an extra full-length episode. We'll also be doing a themed episode where we focus on one theme of a crime but talk about it happening in a number of different cases. So maybe patricide, the stories of people who have killed their dads, or maybe cannibals, the horrific, lesser-known stories of cooking your husband. In December, we're focusing on cults, and there's going to be a regular episode focusing on one cult for all listeners. So if that's your jam, don't worry, you'll get culted up. But if you want more cults, head over to Patreon. Disclaimer, Red Rum True Crime is not a cult. It is not affiliated with any cults and any claim that it is a cult should be redirected to the leader. And now, on with the show. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. At around 10.20am, Rachel turned a corner and walked up the path towards a wooded area, leading Alex by his hand. Alex noticed a man following them, not too far behind. He noticed his black bag, his white shirt, his brown hair and the fact he walked with a slight limp. Suddenly, the man was next to them. He threw Alex to the ground and grabbed Rachel, dragging her off towards the bushes. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 17, Rachel, Samantha and Jasmine. The village of Great Totham sits between the city of Chelmsford and the town of Colchester, northeast of London. By all accounts, the winding paths and quaint parks of Great Totham made up an idyllic background to Rachel Nichols' childhood and upbringing. Her father Andrew, who was an army officer, and mother Monica, decided to have a baby in 1968 and on Saturday the 23rd of November, Monica gave birth to Rachel. Rachel grew up as a happy child. She loved to practice singing and acting with her friends, and by the age of 11, she had also taken up dancing at the Essex Dance Theatre. Rachel was extremely kind-hearted and was keen to help out wherever she could. Before she was a teenager, 
She also began helping out at the old folks' home and with disabled children in her village. Rachel began attending Colchester High School for Girls and whilst her drama teacher praised her as a natural talent, Rachel decided she wanted to continue working hard at school with the goal of attending university to study English. By the time she was 18, she had been accepted onto a university course to study both English and history. Just a year later, Rachel began working alongside her studies as a lifeguard at a swimming pool in Richmond, southwest London. One afternoon, she was a few hours into her shift at the pool when a well-built young man called Andre Hanscom caught her eye. The two started talking and quickly realised they both had a love for travel and excitement. Andre asked Rachel if he could take her on a date and she agreed. That evening, she and Andre went on their first date. The entire evening was filled with constant chatter and laughter and Andre told Rachel that he was a semi-professional tennis player but currently he was working as a motorbike courier. He had a flat in Balham in South London and he had big plans to sell up someday and move abroad, probably to France. Rachel was stunned. She'd always wanted to move abroad and rural France was perfect in its closeness to her family along with its beautiful landscapes and culture. As soon as the date had ended, Rachel called her mum and told her that she had found the man of her life, her soulmate. It wasn't long before the romance of the relationship had swept Rachel off her feet and she moved into Andre's South London flat. Just months later, Rachel was pregnant and soon gave birth to a baby boy, Alex. She and Andre were thrilled. Rachel had left university to have Alex, but she didn't mind. She loved being a mum, and the couple planned to move to France within the next few years. Becoming a mum was like second nature to Rachel. The love and care she felt for Alex was unlike anything she'd ever felt before and she and Andre did everything they could to be the best parents they could be and provide for Alex. They even brought home a Labrador puppy called Molly for Alex to play with. One warm Wednesday morning in July of 1992, Alex sat down at the dining room table as his dad cooked a full fry-up for breakfast. Alex gobbled down his eggs and bacon before peering out of the window to see his dad jumping onto his motorbike and heading off down the road. Rachel called Alex through to the hallway where she tied his shoes, put his jacket on and grabbed the dog lead for Molly. The mother, son and dog then headed out on their morning walk along the green grassy area of Wimbledon Common The common was home to hundreds of acres of woodland 
and even a windmill. As Rachel and Alex walked Molly along a well-used path through the common, they saw many other mums and dads and tots walking across the large expanse of the open grassy area. At around 10.20am, Rachel turned a corner and walked up a path towards a wooded area, leading Alex by his hand. Alex noticed a man following them, not too far behind. He noticed his black bag, his white shirt, his brown hair, and the fact he walked with a slight limp. Suddenly, the man was next to them. He threw Alex to the ground and grabbed Rachel, dragging her off towards the bushes. Rachel didn't scream. She just fought. The man had pushed Alex to the ground, held a knife to Rachel and forced her to a nearby bush, away from the sight of any passers-by. He then launched a savage and horrific attack, first sexually assaulting her and continuing the brutality by stabbing her quickly and ferociously. One of the 49 stabs to Rachel slit her throat so deeply that she was nearly decapitated and quickly bled out. When Alex realised what had happened, he hurriedly made his way over to his mum and noticed the man had walked up to the stream just a few feet away and was washing the blood off of his hands. Just moments later, a man called Michael was walking his dog in the direction of the secluded woodland area. At first, he thought he could see a woman sunbathing, but when he heard Alex hysterically crying for his mother to get up, he realised something was wrong. As he got closer to Rachel, he found her lying completely still underneath a tree. Even though only minutes had passed by since the attack, the perpetrator, the man with a white shirt and brown hair, was nowhere to be seen. Michael immediately called 999 and emergency services soon arrived. Paramedics realised that there was no hope of saving Rachel and soon after, the police arrived at the scene. The Wimbledon Common was alive with a flurry of people, mums and dads, sisters and brothers, but of the 500 witnesses around, no one had seen anything of the attack and there was little eyewitness testimony to go on. The officers cordoned off the crime scene and began an in-depth forensic search. Following the murder, detectives led a press conference in which Rachel's dad, along with Rachel's partner Andre, appealed for any information about the killer. Andre said, quote, For anybody who does know this person, no matter how they feel about them, please come forward before they destroy anyone else's lives. Unquote. After the forensic search of the woodland area, officers were disappointed to discover no foreign blood or fibres that could help link them to a suspect immediately. They knew that even though the suspect had rinsed his bloody hands off in the nearby river 
because of the severity of Rachel's wounds, he would have been covered in blood as he left the common. Unfortunately, no one that they spoke to had seen the suspect and the trail soon went cold. With such a lack of evidence, police officers had to think outside the box. They decided to rig cameras up to the crime scene to see if the suspect would return in the future. But when that failed to source any new leads, officers knew they would have to work harder, and rather than wait for the suspect to come to them, they would have to be more proactive in their approach to catching the murderer. They knew from suspect profiling, conducted by Paul Britton, that their murderer would live within walking distance to Wimbledon Common. He would also be single and likely living on his own. They also suggested that he would kill again if he wasn't stopped. A composite sketch was drawn from an eyewitness description of a man who was acting suspiciously just moments before the attack had happened. The sketch was then distributed to all local areas and even appeared on Crime Watch. With this large amount of publicity, Crime Watch received over 800 phone calls with many viewers identifying the same individual. His name was Colin Stagg. When police interviewed Colin, they realised that he matched their suspect profile to a T. They charged him with the murder of Rachel. Whilst questioning Colin, he did admit to being on the common earlier that morning, but said that he had a headache. So as he reached CO Pond, an area fairly near his house, he turned back and headed home. He told officers he was back in his lounge by 9.25am that he took some painkillers and had a nap on his sofa. Colin told officers that he had actually returned to the common later that morning once his headache had gone. He told officers he'd changed his clothes, had a cup of tea and taken his dog out for a longer walk this time. He also said that on his second walk, he was stopped by an officer who informed him they'd found a body and was taking everyone's names and addresses who had been on the common that morning. Colin had lived on the estate near the common since he was a child and had always enjoyed morning walks across the grassy park. He volunteered this information in hopes that he could help in some way. Whilst in police custody, Colin was questioned about a previous incident where he had been lying naked on the common. He told officers that he was just doing nude sunbathing in an area where others also sunbathed nude. However, his lawyer advised him to plead guilty to indecent exposure so he could avoid jail time by simply paying a £220 fine. Colin did this and went home, but he quickly became known as the most likely suspect in the Rachel Nickel case, as well as a previous sex offender. 
Whilst Colin had been in police custody, his flat had been searched and both a knife and a stash of pornography were found. Police also discovered a set of walls which had been covered with blackboard paint. On those walls were pictures of Satanism, magic and erotic drawings. To some police officers, this solidified their suspicions of Colin, but without firm evidence and with no forensic evidence linking him to the murder scene, the police needed more. Some months after Colin was released from police interrogation, he received a letter from a woman called Lizzie James. Lizzie had read a letter that Colin had written to a friend of hers a few years earlier. The letter was one of many, after Colin had answered a dating advert Julie had posted in the newspaper. The letter Lizzie had found outlined a sexual fantasy where Colin described he and Julie having sex in a public place. Colin received an unexpected letter from Lizzie one morning. He didn't know her, but she told him that after finding the letter he'd written to her friend, it had intrigued her and she wanted to get to know him. A romantic dialogue quickly ensued. Lizzie told Colin she wanted a real man and he could show her what that was. She told him she wanted to feel defenceless and humiliated. If he could do that to her, it would be her idea of paradise. Colin told Lizzie that he had previously been questioned on suspicion of the murder of Rachel Nickell, but they didn't have enough evidence to put him away. Lizzie told Colin that this information turned her on, but ultimately Colin didn't admit to it. He instead continuously denied his involvement. A few months after Lizzie had first written to Colin, and after hundreds of letters and phone calls, the pair decided to meet face to face. One warm afternoon in the late summer, Lizzie put on a floral dress, made her way towards nearby Hyde Park and spotted Colin waiting just outside of the park's cafe. The first meeting was a little awkward, but once Colin showed Lizzie inside to a table and ordered lunch, the pair began talking and realised they had a lot in common. The bustling midday lunch rush hid the macabre nature of their conversation. Lizzie told Colin she was so attracted to his connection to the murder of Rachel Nickell because she too had killed before. She confessed that she had a dark side. She and her ex-partner had sacrificed a pregnant woman and her baby and they'd gotten away with it. She needed to connect with someone who understood what she was like. She could only be with someone who had committed a crime like hers. Over the next few weeks, the relationship flourished. The couple spoke on the phone and Colin told Lizzie he'd never met anyone like her. He said he wouldn't throw it away for anything and he couldn't wait for the pair to finally have sex 
and take their relationship to the next level. Lizzie said that she was quite private and would only be able to have sex with Colin once he'd been completely honest and admitted to his part in the Rachel Nickel murder. Colin did, however, say that he could pretend if she wanted him to, but it would be a lie. Not long after this conversation, Colin was arrested for the murder of Rachel Nickel and held in police custody. As the police officers interviewed him, one of them got up out of his seat and opened the door of the interview room. To Colin's surprise, in walked Lizzie James. Colin was informed that Lizzie was actually an undercover officer and their entire relationship had been an undercover operation. It suddenly all made sense to Colin. He realised that's why she was the way she was. He said, quote, That's why she, a beautiful woman, was interested in me. That's the reality. Unquote. The details of the operation and the information gathered were soon made clear to him. Even at his and Lizzie's first meeting in the cafe in Hyde Park, the other customers were actually undercover officers who were secretly listening into the conversations. Lizzie had also recorded all of the phone calls and conversations that the pair had had. Colin had been charged with the murder and held in custody for a year before the evidence was presented to Mr Justice Ognall. In reference to criminal profiler and psychologist Paul Britton, Mr Justice Ognall said, quote, This operation was sustained in constant consultation with the psychologist. The policewoman was acting under orders and the police in their turn were being guided by the psychologist, unquote. So much of the investigation relied on the profile that Paul Britton had compiled that then pointed to Colin as the prime suspect. And in fact, many other potential suspects were ruled out early on in the investigation, based on the height profiling being under six foot. Mr Justice Ognall completely disagreed with the police. He condemned them for attempting to, quote, incriminate a suspect by positive and deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. Unquote. Mr Justice Ognall refused to put the undercover officer's evidence before a jury and told them to let Colin Stagg go free. The decision was received somewhat controversially by the media and the public. Although the police had briefed the press that Colin had been freed, they encouraged Rachel's father to address the press with the view that Colin had gotten away with murder, based on a technicality. On a warm summer's morning in 1989, a young mother was in her home in Plumstead, South East London, 
getting her children ready for school. She had managed to have a shower, feed her children breakfast and hang some washing out before rushing back inside and up to her bedroom. Unfortunately, in her haste, she had forgotten to close or lock the back door and of course she had been in her own house on a bright summer's morning. She assumed it was safe. As she began to dry her hair, she turned around to see a real-life nightmare happening in front of her. There was a man standing there with a knife. He told her to be quiet and that if she didn't do exactly as he said, he would hurt her and her children. He then proceeded to rape her. Around this same time, a man called Robert Napper had arrived home to visit his mother. He told her the shocking news that he had raped a woman that morning. He didn't know who she was, but knew her house was near Plumstead Common. Robert's mother then called the police and told them. Soon after, the police did then look into any rapes that recently happened in the Plumstead area, but because of some kind of administrative error, there was no record from the woman of the rape. So Robert wasn't linked to the attack and wasn't even questioned. No further course of action was taken. In March of 1992, over two separate weeks, two different 17-year-old girls were walking along Green Chain Walk when they were attacked. The attacker attempted to rape the girls, but fortunately... They managed to escape and get help. Just two months later, in May, a 22-year-old woman was making her way along the green chain walk with her young child, when a man, fitting Robert Knapper's description, forced her into a slightly enclosed wooded area. He raped her and then tried to strangle her before fleeing the scene. Rachel Nickell's murder happened in July of that year and by August, the police had made a composite sketch of the man leaving the scene. Robert Knapper was identified by two separate neighbours. He was questioned and asked to come in to give blood samples for comparison but both times he actually failed to turn up. The police didn't follow up on this and he was eventually eliminated as a suspect. Even without the DNA comparisons, because he was six foot two inches tall and the rapist had been described as being much shorter at five foot seven inches tall, he was eliminated. By October, Robert had begun stalking his next victim. He chose to stalk an employee at a nearby police station, but he was promptly arrested. Police searched his flat and found a terrifying array of weapons and worrying materials. Officers found a pistol, two knives, a crossbow, a large amount of ammunition, as well as a number of maps 
with markings and notes about how to bind and restrain people. Officers also found a fitness card belonging to an unknown blonde woman. As a result of the search, Robert was only charged with a firearm violation and received an eight-week custodial sentence with no further inquiries. A psychiatric report at the time described him as, quote, without a doubt, an immediate threat to himself and the public, unquote but no further action was taken. Just under half a year later, in April of 1993, a tin box was found buried on Wynn's Common, close to Plumstead Common. Inside the tin box was a handgun and fingerprints that matched Robber, who was already on the system for previous offences. Even with the fingerprint link, Robert was never questioned about the box. By November of 1993, Robert Knapper had begun to stalk a young mother, Samantha Bissett, and her four-year-old daughter, Jasmine. At the time, Samantha was living with her boyfriend, Conrad, in the Plumstead area. She was a carefree, happy-go-lucky kind of woman, but she had mentioned to Conrad that she'd noticed someone peering into the flat from the street down below. One morning in November, Conrad made his way to the flat to pick up some items and check in on Samantha and Jasmine. He unlocked the door and walked inside. He noticed a dark red stain on the carpet near the front door. He wasn't sure what it was, so made his way into the kitchen to find a cleaning spray. He noticed the kitchen was a mess. There were utensils and flour all over the floor, and a chair was overturned. Conrad knew something was terribly wrong. He made his way into the next room, where he saw piles of clothes covered in blood. Next to the bloody clothes was Samantha's body, covered up and cold to the touch. Conrad rushed into Jasmine's room, where he found her in bed with the covers pulled over her. She wasn't breathing and was cold. He immediately called police. It soon transpired that Robert had never met Samantha. He had stalked her for weeks before the murders and knowing Conrad wasn't in the house, Robert had dressed in dark jeans and a hoodie, made his way to her front door, knocked and waited. When Samantha answered, he immediately began stabbing her in the neck and chest. He stabbed her 70 times before mutilating her body. He had raped Jasmine before smothering her with a pillow. Immediately following the attack, forensic experts examined the home and the areas surrounding it. Experts found fingerprints on the balcony of the home, as well as bloody footprints in the kitchen area. The footprints were a match to Robert, as well as the fingerprint 
which matched the fingerprints on file from eight previous offences. Robert was arrested and charged. Whilst he was awaiting trial, he told officers that he had been instructed by people in outer space to murder Samantha and Jasmine. Robert was assessed by a psychiatrist who found him to be a paranoid schizophrenic. And in October of 1995, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter by way of diminished responsibility. He was sentenced to spend the remainder of his life in a high-security psychiatric hospital called Broadmoor. Throughout this time, although Colin Stagg had been acquitted of all charges with regards to the Rachel Nickel case, he was still seen as the prime suspect. He continued to protest his innocence and even took a televised lie detector test which he passed. The press coverage that followed Samantha and Jasmine's murders was in stark contrast to what had followed Rachel Nickel's murder and some of the other attacks. Samantha was seen as a single, working-class mum. There wasn't the national coverage that there should have been and therefore there wasn't the exposure to the crime and the subsequent guilty perpetrator was not linked to the Rachel Nickel murder until much later. It wasn't until a review of the Rachel Nickel case in 2004, where Robert Knapper was flagged up as a potential suspect. Rapid advancement in forensic technology meant that a small piece of forensic evidence on Rachel's trousers and Alex's hair could be matched to Robert's toolbox. On the 18th of December 2008, Robert pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Rachel Nickel on diminished responsibility and was sent back to Broadmoor. The failed Edsel operation was hugely costly to the public. The total cost was three million pounds, as well as the compensation agreements of £700,000 to Colin Stagg, £125,000 to the female officer who acted as Lizzie James, and £22,000 to Rachel Nickel's son, Alex. Pressure from authorities and the public to solve a case like this can result in bad judgement and police incompetence. The way police run murder investigations has changed significantly since the complications and incompetencies associated with the Robert Knapper attacks. Police Commander Mr Foy said the Homicide Command, which he led following Knapper's conviction, was significantly different. He said, quote, We now have a unified command to ensure that intelligence and investigative opportunities are not missed. Unquote. The investigations now have dedicated murder teams with specialists. The work is much more specific and detailed and results in a much more accurate and higher rate of conviction. That being said, in the US, 
it is estimated that between 2 and 10% of people incarcerated are actually innocent and wrongly convicted. This, in number terms, is around 2.3 million. There isn't really any way of confirming the numbers, and in the UK, the statistics are equally as unreliable. But there are 26 university innocence projects in the UK, and a number of high-profile convictions have since been overturned. Operation Edsel was described as a, quote, honey trap. It's a very clear example of the danger that accompanies incompetent police work that can literally result in death. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.